Talk Show. Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Yahweh's Covenant People. This is Saturday, October 23rd, 2010, and I am filling in for Eli James, who is here, who, who is away this weekend. He was here on um, Thursday, and he's in Pennsylvania right now. And I'll be filling in for him tomorrow afternoon on The Voice of Christian Israel. Eli will be back on Friday with Chris DeGenos and our resumption of our series on Ezekiel. Tonight, I'm, I'm going to present... Errors Inspired by Who, Part 2. I had presented Part 1 of this series of, of hopefully um, four parts a couple of months ago. I must say it probably has about 2,000 downloads from Christogenia, which I'm well pleased with. It's an exposition of errors in the King James Version of the Bible. And my point is that if there's one mistake in the translation of the King James Version of the Bible, then the English Version cannot possibly be the inspired Word of God. Upon inspection of the original Greek, one will see that there are many mistakes. And I'm not going to claim that my translation is perfect, because that's not the inspired Word of God either. The original Greek surely was the inspired word of God. It's what men have done to its sense that have screwed it up. However, upon inspection of all the ancient manuscripts, we can come close to it. And most of the difference in the manuscripts are insignificant. But we have to recognize that the King James contains many errors in translation, plain errors. And that's what I'm presenting in this series are plain errors, not matters of opinion. In the first part of this series, I, trans I presented nothing but plain grammatical errors, errors in translation. If I wanted to get into opinions, I could be here for a long time. I could have 400 parts and not four. four. But that's, that, that's besides the point. It's the plain errors. If we see that there's one, then we can't accept it as so many fools do, to be the inspired word of God by itself. Many King James advocates would swear that Jesus Christ came down and, and in London in the 1600s and transmitted the Bible to men. That's just crazy. Errors Inspired by Who? Part 2. Written at Westminster Abbey by scholars of the Anglican Church at the behest of the English Parliament in 1643. The Westminster Confession of Faith, as it's called, was also accepted and adopted by many other denominations, both in England and abroad. In Chapter 1, Section 8 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, the churchmen at that time, just over 30 years after the institution of the King James Bible by the Anglican Church, they did not even consider 
the authorized version by itself to be the inspired word of God. But rather, they admit instead the authority of the original languages. The veracity of this statement as it appears in the confession, I have verified from several sources. They're online. They could be investigated. This following paragraph is from Chapter 1, Section 8 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, an official confession of the Anglican Church made in 1643. And I quote, The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the God of the people of the God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God, and by his singular care and providence kept pure in all ages, and therefore authentical, so as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal unto them, meaning the Greek and the Hebrew. But because these original tongues are not known to all of the people of God who have a right unto and interest in the Scriptures and are commanded in the fear of God to read and to search them. Therefore, they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation unto which they come. That the Word of God dwell, dwelling plentifully in all they may worship him in an acceptable manner and through patience and comfort of the scriptures, they may have hope. If, in the 17th century, the British Parliament and clergymen of the Anglican Church formed and accepted this statement, which they did, then we see that the idea of the King James Version itself being the inspired Word of God is nothing more than a later-day heresy. And those who cling to it are no better than the heretics of any other cult. They are worshipping the works of the hands of men. We must appeal and study to the original languages and study the original languages of Scripture if we're to understand it. In the first part of the series, we discussed selected translation errors found in the authorized King James Version of the Bible and the epistles of Paul from Romans through Ephesians. Here, we will continue with the rest of Paul's epistles starting with the epistle to the Colossians. Colossians 1.23 If you continue in the faith grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. That phrase, every creature, is in Greek, and passe katisai, which I must translate among all the creation. Or alternatively, it may be read, among the whole creation. 
And that's because the words pas and catesis are in the dative singular. Where pas is when of only one, according to Liddell and Scott, all or the whole. Romans 8, verses 38 and 39, make it quite clear that Paul considered the Adamic race of man a single family of one specific kind to be one creation as opposed to other kinds in the universe. And so the whole creation or all of the creation are correct here, meaning all of the Adamic creation and not every creature. Let me quote Paul at, at Romans 8, 38 and 39. I am persuaded that neither life nor death nor messengers nor magistrates nor present nor future nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other creation will be able to separate us from the love of Yahweh which is in Christ Joshua our Prince. Paul clearly references here the Adamic race as a single unit or kind of the creation. It's different races or as the King James has here in Colossians, every creature were meant, then the words would have to appear in the dative plural. There are examples of that in Greek writing. I would cite Tobit, chapter 8, verses 5, 6, and 15 in the Septuagint for a clear example of that. Here the words are in the dative singular and pas, which means all when it talks about the individuals of a group or the whole when it talks about a, about a singular entity being in the singular must be read the whole so Paul is referencing here in Colossians 1.23 the whole Adamic creation and he's not talking about every creature under heaven the King James translation is practically dishonest however I would think that the understanding has changed drastically in 400 years. It's possible that they did not mean what it means to church people today. Colossians 3.24. This is important because there are so many subtle misinterpretations or mistranslations of the Greek in Paul that they practically rewritten Paul's letters in the King James and the English translation to mean nothing like what they, what they originally meant. In the King James Colossians 3.24 reads, Knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. That phrase, ye shall receive the reward, as it is rendered in the King James, is apolenceste pain antipodosin in Greek. The word rendered receive is from the verb apolambano. Now, the verb lambano itself, without the prefix, would suffice to mean receive. The word apolambano means not merely to receive, but to get something back 
or to recover it. The word antipodosis, which the King James translates as reward, is by not by any means can that word mean a reward. Rather, that word antipodosis refers to something which is given back or a giving back in turn. So it is evident that these two words, apolambano and antipodosis, are actually working together in context, and they can only mean, if you want to translate this phrase honestly, a return of something being given back. The King James rendering is nothing but dishonest. The phrase can only mean that you shall recover the return of the inheritance. Indeed, Paul knew when he wrote his epistles that he was talking to a part of the dispersion of ancient Israel. Those people who had lost their heritage in the first place as described in the histories and in the prophets, all of which had nothing to do with the Jews. Colossians 4.5 Walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time, as the King James read, reads. I would ask, walk in wisdom towards them that are without what? This archaic English rendering is quite obscure today and may be readily misconstrued to mean something that the Greek cannot possibly mean. The word rendered without means outside, referring to someone who cannot possibly be inside, or in other words, considered to be within the covenants of God. In reference to those outside, you walk in, in wisdom, buying the time, is what Paul is saying. In reference to those outside, or pertaining to those outside, is precisely the exclusive statement which Paul intended it to be, and the references supporting this in Paul's epistles are numerous. The covenants are only for Israelites, even to this day. Note as examples Galatians 6.10, where Paul talks about the family of the faith, Philippians 2.15, where he talks about unmixed blood, and 2 Thessalonians 3.2, which I'm about to discuss in a few minutes here, where Paul says that we should be protected from those disgusting and wicked men since the faith is not for all. All of these passages are severely mistranslated in the King James Version. Some of them I've already exposited here in the first part of this series. And there are many other places to refer to where the same word, ectos or without, or outside, is used in the same manner. In Revelations 22.15, it's used of those outside of the city. And that's what the word means. People outside of the covenant. That's what Paul was referring to. Mainstream translators have butchered Paul's words. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6-8. to 
this is that this is um a segment of scripture that is very very often mistranslated not only by the the translators but by commentators who like to um support the doctrine the the false doctrine and the false interpretation of scripture known as futurism and I'm going to read 2 Thessalonians 2, 6-8 from the King James. And now ye know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. Whatever that means. And then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Because these words are so ambiguous in English, they are very much abused in interpretation and in commentaries. First, there is really no future tense here at all. For Paul is talking about something that was already going on when he was writing. Furthermore, the verb cat echo, Strong's number 2722, which the King James translated withhold in verse 6 and to let in verse 7, that verb is, it, it really means to hold fast, to hold back, to withhold, to detain, to have in possession, possess, or occupy, to hold down, overpower, oppress, or afflict. Now, in the intransitive, and in the transitive it means to hold, stop, cease, to prevail, or to have the upper hand. Now, it's a matter of interpretation, as to whether to um, translate this, verse, this verb intransitively or transitively, but I would assert that in the context it's used here, it should be translated in the transitive as to prevail. Although it's quite a versatile word, no matter how many lexicons you read, you won't be able to account for the King James Version's rendering of this verb as to let in verse 7. It seems that in the AV, the authorized version, the translators took the subject of Paul's statements here to be Yahweh himself. And so they confused the rendering of the verb, gave it a meaning it can't possibly have, and they, while they distorted the verb, they inserted words that are not found in the text which we see in the King James Version as will let in italics. And they did that because they confused the subject and they had to make sense of the statements. Rather, the subject of Paul's statement here in verses 6 and 7 has not changed from verses 3 and 4. It is that same man of lawlessness and son of destruction, the terms being used collectively. 
And so there is no confusion once we read it and keep Paul's statements in context. This is one of those passages which futurists use to support their false Antichrist theory, that the Antichrist is still to come and hasn't been here all along, where Paul is actually telling us that the Antichrist was here all along and was the entity he... this. And, and this entity which he references was prevailing at Paul's own time. The first five verses tell us exactly who this is, that this entity was seated in the temple of Yahweh and pretending to be as Yahweh. That can only mean the Edomite high priest, right? In verse 4, Paul tells us that he is seated in the present tense as Paul wrote. We must read the entire passage to understand verses 6 to 8 properly, and therefore I'll read it from the Christogene New Testament. Now we ask you, brethren, concerning the presence of Prince Yahshua Christ and our gathering to him, that you are not to be quickly shaken from this purpose, and you should not be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as if by us, as though the day of the prince, or the Lord, is present. You should not be deceived by anyone in any way, because if apostasy had not come first, past tense, and the man of lawlessness been revealed by Christ, the son of destruction, he who is opposing and exalting himself above everything said to be a god or an object of worship. We see the Edomite Jews doing the same thing today. And so he is seated in the temple of Yahweh, representing himself that he is a god. Do you not remember that being, yet being with you, I had told these things to you? And you know, and these are the verses in question, verses 6 and 7, and you know that which now prevails for him to be revealed in his own time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already operating. He prevailing only presently until he should be taken out of the way. And then, verse 8, will the lawless be revealed, whom Prince Yahshua will destroy with the breath of his mouth and abolish at the manifestation of his presence which is what we see in Revelation chapters 19 and 20. So verses 6 and 7 are talking about the Antichrist, Edomite Jew, as is all of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and that's exactly who Paul is talking about, the people that were sitting in the temple playing God. Paul's still talking about them in 2 Thessalonians 3, 2, where the King James says, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. That's horrible. The last clause of this verse, for all men have not faith, is consistent in all of the ancient manuscripts cited by the NA-27, all of the known existing 
important manuscripts. And it is indisputably Ugar Panton Hepistus. Five words. A word for men, which is italicized in the King James Version here, does not appear in the clause. However, neither does the verb translated to have, well, it's not really translated by the King James, it's just added, and they didn't put it in italics. There is no verb have in the clause, and there is no word men in the clause. These five words I'll now discuss. Ugar, Pantone, Hatistus. The conjunction gar is explained by Little and Liddell and Scott to mean, one, argumentative, to introduce the reason for a statement which usually precedes. This first use fits this occasion perfectly. Other uses of gar are listed as exegetic and strengthening. They do not fit the grammatical purpose or the context here. Liddell and Scott state that gar is, in the Greek, regularly placed after the first word of a sentence, although this, this is, of course, not the case in English. Gar here is rendered sense in my translation, and that's because, it, as Liddell and Scott defined it, it introduces the reason for the statement which precedes. The word pantone here is the genitive plural of pas, which means all. The genitive case marks source or possession. Surely in this case, it does not indicate source. The particle u, the first word of the clause, is an unconditional negative. Here, it negates pantone, the word which, it, which follows it. There's a verb in Greek, aimi, which means to be, and it's very unique among Greek verbs in that, quote, quoting Joseph Sayer's lexicon, as in, classical Greek, as in classical Greek, also in the New Testament, aimi is very often omitted. Estin, which we normally translate is, is omitted most frequently of all the parts. That's Joseph Thayer, page 180, column B. Estin is the third person present singular of Aini and means it is or simply is. Examples of its omission are near at hand several times in 2 Thessalonians and the King James alone. This verb will be supplied here in its most natural position following the subject of the clause which is marked by the nominative case and will be discussed next. The phrase hey pistis here is the faith with the definite article. It is in a nominative case and certainly cannot be the object of any verb as the King James has it to be. The King James in this clause, they've taken the nominative case, which is normally the subject of a clause, and they've made it the object of the clause. They've made it the object of the verb. 
And they supplied the verb because there's no verb in a sentence. This situation would require not only a verb, but it would require the words to be in the accusative case. This is a fundamental of grammar, and it's, it's readily evident in any Greek grammar textbook that the King James has wrongly taken the subject of this clause and made it the object of a non-existent verb. That's a serious error in translation. With this, it should surely be clear that the AV, the King James Version rendering of this clause is absolutely untenable. The rendering of the text should be since the conjunction gar introducing the reason for the statement which preceded the faith because in English, we are inclined to state the subject of the clause at its beginning, where in Greek it appears at the end, is, estin being implied in Greek, as that we saw Thayer attest that it often is, not the negative particle preceding that which it negates, of, i.e. belonging to or for, all being in a genitive case. So the clause that the King James renders, for not all men have faith, can only be translated properly since the faith is not for all. There is a huge difference in those two statements. Paul is explicitly telling us that Christianity is not for everybody. 2 Thessalonians 3, 2 should say, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, since the faith is not for all. The King James butchered that and, and made Paul to be a liar, basically. All men don't have faith because, as Paul's saying, it's not for them. That brings me to the epistle of the Hebrews. The epistle of the Hebrews was a fairly safe epistle for the King James translators. And there are some petty things to pick on, but they all revolve around minor matters of interpretation or differences in manuscripts. Since it is an epistle to Hebrews of the circumcision who still kept the law and the prophets, there was not much opportunity for the King James translators to screw up since they seem to have obfuscated every passage that had to do with the lost sheep of the house of Israel and with the nations that descended from Abraham's seed. Because of its nature, most of the, most of the epistle comes straight from Old Testament passages. One place where the King James translators did err in Hebrews is at Hebrews 11.4 where it states by faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain by which he obtained witness that he was righteous God testifying of his gifts and by it he being dead yet speaks the God in the Greek of this passage where it says God testifying of his gifts 
is in the genitive case and not in the nominative, as the King James translated it. And therefore, it is not necessarily the subject of the sentence. Rather, since the word rendered testifying is a participle form of a verb, and since in Greek, participles, while being verbs, also have case, which in this instance is also genitive, the genitive participle verb and the genitive noun rendered God must be understood as a unit. What this testified, what this verse is really saying is the fact that Abel was accredited came from Abel's having testified of God and not God's having testified of Abel. Here is a simple and straightforward rendering, perfectly literal from the Greek. By faith, Abel offered to Yahweh a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he was accredited to be righteous, having testified of Yahweh, or of God, by his gifts, and being slain because of it, meaning because of that testimony, he still speaks. Hebrews 11:17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Yet Abraham at this time had another son, Ishmael. So Isaac wasn't really his only begotten son. This is where it's, it, 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 one, one can say that this is trivial, but this is an exposition that it's important to read contemporary literature. so that we can understand what the Bible is actually saying. The use of monogenes, which is the word here literally translated only begotten, where there were other sons, as Genesis 22.2 in the King James Version, and in the Septuagint where Isaac is instead called the Beloved One, a test, as the term was also used by Flavius Josephus at Antiquities, Book 1, Chapter 13, and Book 20, Chapter 2, where Whiston, the translator of Josephus, makes note at those points in his translation and shows that the term surely was used as a metaphor for best beloved or most loved. And the Septuagint translators clearly understood that when they translated Genesis into Greek. Josephus explains, more or less, and proves through his usage, that monogenes, even though it literally means only begotten, was used as a metaphor for best loved or most loved. That is why Isaac's called the only begotten son, when really he's the favorite son of many or, or of more than one son. That's not really a mistranslation on the part of the King James Bible translators, but it is a, um, an exposition that they did not fully understand, at least that one idiom.
and in truth they did not fully understand many idioms. One Timothy, chapter one, verse two. Thank you, Patricia. In Paul's salutation to Timothy, in the first epistle of that name, we find in the King James Version, quote, unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Now the words my own do not appear in any Greek manuscript. The King James translation does omit another word, however, and that is nasios. Perhaps I'm being sarcastic. Instead, the King James actually translated Gnasios as my own. But that is a definition that the word can't bear under any circumstances. Under no circumstance can Nasios ever mean my own. Nasios, Strong's number 1103, means of or belonging to the race, i.e., lawfully begotten or legitimate as opposed to nathus. That's a quote from Liddell and Scott. The word nathus appears in the Bible at Hebrews 12.8, where it is opposed to the word huios, which means son. And the King James translates it bastard, which is what it should be translated as. Nathus, which also can mean half-breed, which is to me what a bastard is. Nathus also appears several times in the Septuagint in that same context, describing somebody who is not of the pure race. The word should be translated here, Nasios, which is the antonym or the opposite of Nathus, that word should be translated here, purely bred. It should be translated that way here in Timothy, and it should be translated that way in Titus 1.4. Where in this context, only such a phrase as purely bred can capture the full meaning and the intention of the writer. In other words, Paul is telling Timothy that he's purely bred son in the faith. In other contexts where it's not talking about people, nasios can mean legitimacy or genuine, as it does in 2 Corinthians 8.8 8, or in Philippians 4.3, or as an adverb genuinely at Philippians 2.20. However, both here and in Titus, a stronger Translation is required because, in context, a stronger meaning is inferred. As it is explained elsewhere in the scripture, Titus was a Greek, and Timothy was a Hebrew on his mother's side, but he had a Greek father. He especially would have been considered a bastard by both the Judeans and by the Greeks. Titus may have been held suspect by the Judeans, since Greek was a general term denoting the language and culture 
of a collection of diverse Adamic tribes, and the Greek people had lost the genealogies that as Israelites they once had, and that as the Judeans were more recently accustomed to maintaining. But Paul, as he correctly did throughout his ministry, taught that many of the Greeks actually descended from the ancient Israelites of Scripture. Knowing this, Paul was surely assuring Titus and Timothy of their legitimacy, and therefore of their respective shares in the covenants made with Israel. I must read 1 Timothy 1-2, as I did in the Christogenian New Testament, in this manner, quote, To Timothy, purely bred child in the faith, favor, mercy, peace from Father Yahweh and Christ Yahshua our Prince. And Titus 1-4 must be read likewise. To Titus, a purely bred child according to the common belief, favor and peace from Yahweh, even Yahshua Christ, our Savior, where coyness is common and pistis is belief, and both of those are perfectly literal meanings. These are perfectly literal renderings of the Greek that are quite harmonious with the context and the purpose of the Scripture. One Timothy 2:14 reads in the King James version, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. I hate to trouble you with the Greek of this verse, but it reads Kai Adam Uk I'm sorry, I can't pronounce Greek. Apatese Hey Ex apatesaisa and parabasai gegonin. I really want to concentrate on en parabasai gegonin. En parabasai gegonin here is a specific phrase which can only mean when the transgression occurred or when the transgression happened. The transgression, parabasis, Strong's number 3847, is the subject of the verb ex apatao, Strong's number 1096, where the King James renders this clause, the woman is the subject of the verb. And that's not true in Greek. The transgression is the subject of the verb. While Adam certainly also transgressed, and we see that in Job 31:33 and 1 Corinthians 15:22 Adam transgressed but Adam was not deceived into doing so as Paul attests in Romans chapter 8 sin came into the society through Adam and not through the woman the King James translators here seemed as though they too like Adam did are trying to blame the woman instead of Adam. The distinction being made here is that Adam was in the transgression, as was the woman. But of the two, only the woman had been deceived. So Adam must have sinned purposely. Milton, writing Paradise Lost, fully understood this. 
1 Timothy 2.14 is saying a lot more than the way the King James translates it. The King James seems to infer that only the woman was in the transgression. I'm going to move on to 1 Timothy chapter 3. The word deacon appears five times in all of Scripture. On one occasion, it is in Philippians 1.1, where it says bishops and deacons. And when I say Scripture here, I mean the King James, right? The other four times are all here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. In the following four passages of 1 Timothy, we see that the Greek word diakonos was never translated. Rather, it was only transliterated as deacon. 1 Timothy 3.8, likewise must the deacons be grave. 1 Timothy 3.10, then let them use the office of a deacon. 1 Timothy 3.12, let the deacons be husbands of one wife. And 1 Timothy 3.13, for they that have used the office of a deacon well. The Anglicans, the 1611 King James translators, refusing to translate diaconus as it should be, as either minister or servant, and a minister is properly nothing more than a servant, and transliterating the word instead is, I believe, an outright deception. This word appears 30 times in Scripture, approximately. I think it might be 29. And on only these four occasions, and once in Philippians 1.1, was the word rendered deacon. A deacon in the Anglican Church is an official of the church just below a priest. Of course, in the New Testament, and all throughout the early years of Christianity, there was no such thing at all as a Christian priest. The phrase does not appear in early Christian writings until the time of the Council of Nicaea. Then, as soon as Christianity became lawful, around 330 A.D., voila, an entire generation of so-called Christian priests emerged from pagan temples looking to extend their careers as oppressors of their brethren. The word diaconus transliterated in these few passages where everywhere else it is minister in the King James Version was clearly used here in a manner by which the Anglicans could look for biblical approval of their false and unchristian administrative organization. Okay. I wonder how many people have read this next verse and have headed straight for the swine in the barbecue pit. 1 Timothy, chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God has, has created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. 
For every creature, there's that phrase again, every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Because of these, because of the mistranslation in these two verses, dozens of generations of Christians have prayed over all kinds of foul and unclean things and thought they were making them good to eat. In 1 Timothy 4.3, we find the word katizo, Strong's number 29.36, properly to found, used of colonies, and then to establish, according to Liddell and Scott. The word may also be to create or invent, a lesser definition, where the King James translators have rendered it here as created, being in the past tense. Yet Paul could hardly be saying that anything or everything which was created by Yahweh may be eaten. Although the Romans and the French, and especially the the Orientals, may imagine this to be a good idea, it's really a notion that could lead to all sorts of error. Should we really imagine it good to eat mud, rocks, sticks, or even poisons? Rather, Paul is telling us here that whatever was established by Yahweh may be eaten. The primary definition and use in classical Greek of the verb katizo is to establish, not to create. So let's examine the definition and how this word should be defined in the context of the Bible. Even Peter, when he received his vision as it was recorded at Genesis chapter 10, I'm sorry, at Acts chapter 10, after having spent nearly four years walking with and learning from Christ, Even Peter still proclaimed that he would not eat anything common or unclean, referring to the law. And Peter's vision had nothing to do with food. In 1 Timothy 4.4, we find the, the word katisma, Strong's number 2938. Katisma is a noun which is derived from that same verb, katizo, that we have just examined here in verse 3. And it can only be an establishment, which would agree with the sense of the verb as it is used in 4.3. A katisma is a thing founded, a created thing, an original formation, a product, a founding, a foundation, and it can be an establishment. And these two words, when they are translated correctly in the context with Scripture, do no damage to the law whatsoever. And I'm going to translate them correctly and reread the passage. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God has established 
to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every establishment of God is good, and nothing to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Now, if we want to see what God established that we may eat, we we have to refer to the laws of clean and unclean foods in the Old Testament. That's the only honest way to look at these verses. These are the only examples of, mistrans- of mistranslations, which I will elucidate here from the epistles of Paul. Of course, these were a remainder of those epistles, which we did not get to discuss in the first segment of the series of essays, where I covered the bulk of Paul's epistles. Now I'm going to move on to some of the other epistles. Future segments of this series will talk about the Gospel of Luke, the Acts, and, and the works of John. For now, I'll move on to the epistles of Peter and James. 1 Peter one one. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. The King James Version here took the word parepidemos and translated it strangers in the plural. The word parepidemos is not stranger. Rather, it is a sojourner. The word in classical Greek describes someone who has left his own land and travels in a strange country. It is a very specific word with a very specific meaning that cannot be generalized as strangers without leaving behind a good part of the original writer's intent. The word does not signify people who are strangers to Israel or to Peter, as churchianity would prefer it. Rather, the word signifies people who are estranged from Israel, a statement that can only be made of the deported Israelites. We had seen several times in the first segment of this essay how these misinterpretations had changed the entire meaning of Paul's epistles. And here we see the same thing in Peter's first epistle. Peter defines sojourner later in the same chapter by his use of the synonym paroikos, rendered as sojourn even in the King James Version in verse 17 of this chapter. In 1 Peter 2.11, these two words, parepidemus and paroikos, appear together. In that place, the King James rendered paroikos as strangers, but this word here, parepidemus, as pilgrims. I would render the words in 1 Peter 2.11 as emigrants, which is what paroikos properly means, and sojourners. Emigrants from Israel, sojourners from Israel. That is who 
Peter wrote his epistle to. People of the dispersions, the ancient dispersions of the tribes of Israel. 1 Peter 3.6 Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. The portion of this verse, which must be discussed here, is whose daughters ye are as long as ye do well. The King James Version has as long as here. This is a conditional clause, and it does not appear anywhere in any manuscript of the Greek to this verse. The King James also reads the verb as the, the verb ginomahi as a simple aimi, you are, where actually it has a much more emphatic meaning. It means to become, come into being, and of people, it means to be born. The King James Version also attempts to cover for its errors here by translating an, infin an infinitive verb, which means to do, which is to do, as a second-person active verb after it supplies a conditional clause that is not in the text. This is more than plain error. This is plain deception. And one error necessitates the creation of another. Peter here is saying that you have to be born as one of Abraham's children. There is no word anywhere in the Bible about anyone being able to somehow become one of Abraham's children, except by being born one of them. Everywhere the translators have inferred such an idea, it does not appear in the meaning of the original Greek. Here is my reading of 1 Peter 3, 5 and 6. For thusly, at one time also, the holy women who have hope in Yahweh had dressed themselves, meaning dressing themselves modestly, being subject to their own husbands, as Sarah had obeyed Abraham, calling him master, whose children you have been born to do good and not fearing any terror. Peter is talking about physical, natural descendants of Abraham. The Greek proves it. The King James cast a deceptive translation. 2 Peter 1.1 1, 1. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. That word obtained is the Greek word leg, kano. Strong's number 2975. And according to Liddell and Scott, it means to obtain by lot, to obtain by fate, or to obtain by the will of the gods. Remember, this is a pagan, secular Greek lexicon, right? There are many ways in Greek to say obtain. I could probably come up with a dozen. But here, Peter uses a specific word which indicates that this particular obtaining, which he is talking about, was by the will of God. 
since the decrees of Yahweh are spelled out in the Old Testament prophets and nowhere else, and since the Old Testament prophets tell us that this obtaining is only for the children of Israel, the dispersed and the still circumcised, then we can certainly we certainly cannot assume that Peter was including anyone else in his message here. There is no place in the Old Testament that ever tells us that non-Israelites would obtain the covenants of God. Period. While back in Acts chapter 10, Peter evidently did not understand that a lot of the uncircumcised were actually dispersed Israelites. He surely shows an understanding of that here in this epistle, which is written probably about 30 years later. That the uncircumcised peoples of Europe and Mesopotamia, who were the children of those Israelites that had either emigrated or were deported 700 to 1,500 years before the advent of Christ, were still included in the covenants of Yahweh. That is the meaning of Acts chapter 10 and Peter's vision. Therefore, the second epistle of Peter was written, quote, to those who have obtained by faith with us an equally valued faith in the righteousness of our God and Savior, Yahshua Christ. And yes, Peter is calling Yahshua Christ our God and Savior as the Greek construction is a hendiatus and both nouns refer to the same entity. Two Peter two five, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. The King James reading here is absurd. Noah was not the eighth person, where we see that person is italicized and was added to the text. The indefinite article was also added to the text, along with the comma. The Greek word, agdoas, is an ordinal number, and it's not a cardinal number, which would be octo, so neither is it talking about how many people were saved in the flood, as many people assume. The text clearly states that Noah was, once we remove the King James editions, Noah was the eighth proclaimer of righteousness. The words proclaimer and eighth are both in the accusative case and the adjective modifying the noun. Therefore, the two must be understood as a unit. The words are connected and describe the same thing. It is now important to show what that preacher of righteousness means and what Peter is telling us. So we begin by counting patriarchs from Adam. Adam, Seth, Enos, Canaan, Mahawalil, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. Well, that's ten. Abel is discounted because he's never a patriarch. But Enoch was outlived, or, or outlived on this planet anyway. Enoch was taken by God. Methuselah was left behind his father. Lamech was outlived or outlasted 
by his father, by Methuselah. I'm sorry, Methuselah was left Enoch's son, so it passed from Jared over Enoch to Methuselah. And Methuselah outliving his son Lamech, we pass from Methuselah over Lamech to Noah, and skipping Enoch and Lamech by necessity, since they were both outlived or outlasted on earth by their fathers, neither of them ever fulfilled the role of a living head patriarch of the family. So therefore, we see that there were only eight patriarchs of the Adamic family up to Noah. Noah was the eighth, and so he was the eighth preacher of righteousness. That must be what the term means. And of course, Cain also is discounted. He was a patriarch of the serpent seed. Remember that even according to the Westminster, Westminster Confession, it is the original manuscripts and the original languages which were inspired by Yahweh our God and not particularly any English translation, even the King James. We must therefore ask ourselves if we should base our beliefs upon a translation which can clearly be demonstrated to contain errors or whether we we are obliged to examine the Greek manuscripts. Now I'll move on to a few discussions from the epistle of James. James 1, 23 and 24. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholds himself and goes his way and straightway forgets what manner of man he was. First, I have to offer my own reading of James one twenty three, because if anyone is a hearer, because if one is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing the appearance of his race in a mirror. The Greeks to the passage rendered by the King James as his natural face reads, to prosopon tes genesios atu, which is here to the prosopon, appearance, case genesios, of the race, atu, of him, the appearance of the race of him. The words to prosopon are a noun with the definite article and are in the accusative case, and therefore they are the object of the verb translated observing. The words tes genesios atu, are respectively a noun with the definite article and a pronoun, and they are both in the genitive case. Together here, they are treated as an adjectival phrase modifying the noun prosopon, or appearance, by the King James and most other translators. While the phrase itself may be adjectival, the words are still nouns, and therefore, they cannot be merely reduced to an adjective, as the King James has, i.e., his natural face. The Greek language certainly had adjectives for such a purpose, if that was what Paul wanted to say. This is a blatant error on the part of the King James 
translators and just about everybody else who's translated this passage. The word prosopon, which we will see again in James chapter 2, is defined by Liddell and Scott as face, visage, countenance, one's look, outward appearance, or beauty. The word genesios is the genitive form of the noun genesis or genesis, from which we have the English word genesis, and it is defined as an origin, source, productive cause, a beginning, or a manner of birth, or a race, or a descent. In the context here in this phrase, in, in this passage, speaking of the sight of a person in a mirror, I have translated the word race. It certainly cannot be an adjective and mean simply natural, as the A.B. has it. And I would assert that descent, origin, or source would bear the same meaning in this case. However, the use of one of those words would nevertheless be masking the intent of the statement if employed in place of race. This clause can only honestly be read, the appearance of his race, since Genesios is a genitive noun. All this is supported by a comment found at the word face here in the, in the New American Standard Bible, which also mistranslated this passage, but they put in it a footnote where it is stated, literally, the face of his birth. I would assert that neither do they really understand the literal and true meaning of the phrase. Phrases such as the face of his birth or the appearance of his birth, they make no sense in this context. I have translated them the appearance of his race, because that's exactly what James meant. The message here is that although we may not, we may be children of Adam and children of Israel, born in the image and likeness of Yahweh our God, this is not enough by itself. James is telling us, for unless we are also doers of his word, then we are certainly not doing well and not performing to the intent of our Creator. And this is important. Because we can bear the image of light and likeness of Yahweh and know that we have His image and likeness as we look in the mirror. But if we don't walk away from that mirror doing His Word, we may as well be bearing that image. That's what James is saying here. But it's also important that by using the phrase appearance of his race, James is also fully indicating to us that not every race here was born with that image and likeness. This is the end of the second part of my presentation, Errors Inspired by Who? The next segment, I hope to discuss the many mistranslations found in the works of Luke in his Gospel, and in the Acts. Here now, because we have just discussed some things from James and really do not have the time left tonight to start one of the other books, I will do a comparison of James 4.4 4 and John 3.16. Many people think that these two statements conflict with one another, and they do not. 
Rather, it is often our own lack of understanding which is the source of conflict. John 3.16 in the King James Version states, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The important part of this being, for God so loved the world. James 4.4 states, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And people often ask, how could God love the world and we're not supposed to be friends with the world with what we God hates us when, when we try to be friends of the world. And on the surface that seems like a conflict, but it's no conflict at all. The word world in these passages is cosmos, and it really means society. The cosmos is the decoration of the oikumene. The oikumene to the Greeks was the living habitat, the living space, the area where their race dwelt. And the cosmos is the order or arrangement, as the word means, of the oikumene. So therefore, cosmos really means society. But what society does Christ love? And what society does James despise? The society which Christ loves must be that society which is described in John 1.10, which I will read. He was in the society, or the world, and the society came to be through him, the world came to be through him, yet the society knew him not. And the society which Christ needed to save is also described by John at 1 John 5.19, where it says, We know that we are from of Yahweh, and the whole society lies in the power of the evil one. That is the, the world or the society that James disdained. The following passages reveal why the society had become corrupt. John 12:31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world shall be cast out. John 14:30. Hereafter I will not talk much with you. These are words of Christ. For the prince of this world cometh and has nothing in me. John 16:11. Of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 8. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that have come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. This corruption of the society, or the world, began in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve and the serpent, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, and elsewhere. It's the society 
had not become corrupt, Christ would not have had to save it in the first place. So we see that there's no conflict between John 3.16 and James 4.4. The world that Christ loved at John 3.16 is defined by John as the world which was made by him in John 1.10. The world which James despises is the world which became corrupt, exposited, and explained in all of these other verses. But, and I will quote John 5.19, we know that we are from Yahweh in the whole world or society, lies in the power of the evil one. That's the world James hated, but it's the world that Christ had created. That he came to save in John 3.16, as explained by John 3.16. Thank you. Good night. I'll be here at noon tomorrow on The Voice of Christian Israel. I'm going to do the program that we didn't get a chance to do on October 10th, and and it's an exposition that the American colonies were all founded originally on Christian principles, with a couple of very small exceptions. Thank you and good night. God bless.